Hey, I am so glad you're here on this 4th of July weekend. I'm excited. The Lord has a sense of humor, if you didn't know that. Uh, I've known that for a long time because I think that we have the same emotions that God does. I don't think. I know God has placed his emotions inside of us, and I like to laugh. I know a lot of you like to laugh as well. And the irony of this message today is that we're in John chapter number 2, and if you know anything about John chapter number 2, Jesus turns water into wine. Now, I find that ironic on 4th of July weekend that we're going to be reading about Jesus turning water into wine. Now, I did not plan that. That just kind of worked out this way. And uh, some of you are like, that's a miracle I can get behind on 4th of July weekend. You're sitting there being religious like, that's not funny. But it is funny, okay? It is funny that we're in water into wine. Hey, I'm excited to jump into this passage with you today. We're in a series entitled, The Word Became Flesh. And we're going to be looking at the very first miracle that Christ performed in John chapter number 2. So if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to turn there. John chapter 2, we're going to start in verse number 1. And here's what the scriptures say. On the third day, there was a wedding in Canaan and Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus ran to him and said, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water and fill them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who drew the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone who serves the good wine first when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This was the first of his signs Jesus did in Cana and Galilee to manifest his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, this is probably the Bible story that everybody knows. Jesus turned water into wine. And this type of miracle gets two responses from church people tend to be, at least, number one, it causes uncomfortableness because they're like, hey, Jesus drank wine, you know, what's that all about? Uh, then the second response a lot of times is people say, man, this is a miracle I can get behind. I do not know what to pray for. Now I do, right? Jesus can turn water into wine. That could be convenient. Here Here's what we need to recognize from the word go is that this, par this story, uh, this account of Jesus turning water into wine has nothing to do with the wine. It has nothing to do with drinking. It has everything to do with Jesus and pointing to the reality that he manifested his glory in this miracle. And we're going to dwell on this passage for just a few minutes because there are some interesting questions that I think arise when you read the account of Jesus turning water into to wine. The first thing that I've always kind of wondered about is this. Of all the miracles Jesus did, of raising the dead, of opening blind eyes, of multiplying food, why did he turn water into wine in this moment? What was the 
point of this miracle? What was he trying to convey? Of all the miracles that Jesus could have done first, why did he turn water into wine? It seems like opening blind eyes might have been more catchy. It might have drawn more attention, more of a crowd. It seems like raising a dead man might have had more pizzazz to it than turning water into wine. What was the point of this miracle? Well, John makes it very clear to us in verse number 11. John writes that the miracle was the first sign that manifested the glory of Jesus. That's a deep phrase that we need to understand. Jesus manifested his glory in this moment. That's really rich if we can grasp it. Jesus is about 30 years old at this point. He's a young man, yet for 30 years he has lived a normal lifestyle. He has not performed one miracle. He has not performed one act to display his true nature of his deity. And the word sign that John uses means a self-manifestation of his work, meaning Jesus by his own power, his own ability, his own nature manifested that he was God in this moment. Now, we have to remember why John wrote this gospel. He wrote this gospel that we might believe that Jesus is God. And he says this is one of the first signs that Jesus intends for us to realize that he is God. Now, the word sign is really interesting because John is going to use that seven times between now and his crucifixion, Jesus' crucifixion. And there are seven different things that John highlights to say, because he did this, it shows that he's at God. In this moment, Jesus uses this crisis as an opportunity to manifest his divine nature and to show his followers that he is God. And here's what I want us to see out of this passage, is that Jesus will use our crises in our life as an opportunity to manifest his divine nature in our life. He will use the things that, that beat us down. He'll use the, the moments of need. He'll use the crises, both big and small, as an opportunity to show us that he is God to us. Some of us come in a place of need. Some of us are in a place of crisis. And sometimes those needs are big and sometimes they're small. In the case of the water being turned to wine, I mean, they could have drank water. They could have done anything else, but it was a small need that Jesus wanted to use to show that he was God. We have to remember in this account that Jesus is still in the beginning of his ministry. The beginning of this passage confirms that to us. It says a few days after he, he, he called his first disciples, he is is at this wedding. Him turning the water into wine teaches us some truth at the very beginning of his ministry about what he intends to do and who he is. There are several truths that I want to show you about Jesus from this passage. These are truths that hopefully illuminate our heart to who Christ wants to be to you and to me. The first one is this. Jesus turning water into wine teaches us that Jesus is God. Now, if you haven't looked at the calendar, we are in the month of July. And what that means is we are just a few months shy away from college football. How many people love college football? Amen. Come on. I love college football. We got any OU fans in the house? Come on. Oh, you, you, man, I'm sorry, fired up. Now, I don't like the NFL nearly as much. I like college football because it's so much more 
unrefined. I mean, those guys, it's, it's awesome to watch those guys that come in freshman, sophomore, and just their maturation over the next two or three years is just really fun for me to watch. The other cool thing about college is that natural talent really takes a center stage because it's less refined. You can see what God really gave to some of these young men, and it's super impressive. My favorite, probably one of my favorite OU players is definitely Baker Mayfield. He was just so much fun to watch when he was on the football field because he had the ability to make something out of nothing. If the play started to break down, Baker Mayfield, better than any player I've ever watched, had the ability to make something magical happen on that field when either one of his guys were covered or somebody blew coverage. He knew how to escape Houdini out of there and run for 20 yards, or he knew how to extend the play so that one of his guys could get open. And it seemed like he consistently did that week after week after week. And every time he did that, the commentators would inevitably say, well, he turned something out of nothing. When Baker did that, though, when the commentators would say he turned something out of nothing, we know that that's exaggerating a little bit. I mean, Baker didn't make grass appear on the, on the, on the field. He didn't make the football appear in different places. He didn't make fans show up and watch. He didn't make cleats. He was just playing a game. God, on the other hand, does something that none of us can do. God can make something out of nothing. That's what separates God from everything else. If you look in the universe, there's a lot of effects. God is the cause. You and I can't cause very many things to happen. God can cause anything to happen. Now, in our passage, the wine had ran out. And that seems like a trivial problem for us, for the wine to be gone. But it was actually a perfect example of something that we could not fix. In, our cult, in, our, in their culture, running out of wine was a big deal. It was a humiliation to the family. They couldn't just run down to the store and buy some more. And sometimes there are situations in life where deficiencies pop up, and those are situations that we cannot immediately fix on our own. There's a lot of parallels to this story to our own, our own lives. Why did they run out of wine at the wedding? We don't know. Perhaps it was because of poor planning. Maybe the wedding attendant in charge of the festivities didn't do their legwork. They didn't, they didn't study the, the, the itineration of who was going to be there, and so they didn't prepare properly, and now they are embarrassed. They speculate, a lot of people speculate, that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was actually in charge of getting everything prepared for the festivities, and that's why she seemed to take charge and say, hey, we're running out of wine. Perhaps that's true. Perhaps she did not prepare properly. And let's be honest, sometimes we make mistakes in our own lives and we get ourselves in a bind. Have you ever been there? All the time. We overspend our money or we're mean to a loved one or we're lazy at work or we sin and get convicted. I mean, we do lots of things to create our own problems. We create a lot of problems for us that we don't know how to fix. We have blundered something. We have made a mistake and we don't know how to immediately fix it. Jesus can step in and fix our blunders. On the other hand, maybe they ran out of wine because Jesus was invited and he brought extra guests with him, his disciples. Maybe Jesus was invited, but the fellows weren't and they hit the sauce pretty hard when they got there. Who knows? Thank you for laughing at my joke, Charity. And I mean, my goodness, I'm up here giving you the best I have. You can at least give me a courtesy laugh every now and then. I have feelings, you know. Now, I said that in the office the other day, and they laughed at me like, no, you don't. And that hurt, okay? 
maybe Jesus showed up with extra guests. And so they weren't prepared for all the extra people that were going to be there. And sometimes in our own life, life just throws us a curveball, something we weren't prepared for, something that we couldn't calculate on happening. And then boom, we get sideswiped and it creates some blunders in our life. Jesus fixes those mistakes to even the ones that we don't create. Sometimes we get in trouble because of our own doing. Sometimes we get in trouble because of things outside of our control. And when you look at your situation, there's nothing that you can do. There is nothing that you can figure out to fix this. Nothing is not a problem for God. And Jesus is God, and he created something out of nothing in this moment. There was no wine to be found, but Jesus, all he had to do without giving a word, without waving his hand, he didn't even flick his finger. He just told him to fill up those jars with water, and without saying a word, that water became wine. That is so powerful if you think about it. You and I cannot do that by our own power. We cannot just look at something and transform it into something else. You and I don't have that ability. We cannot create something out of nothing. Only God can do that. And Jesus is God. So in this moment when this nothing became something, everyone who was watching that said, this man is different. This man is God. And that should give us some hope in our own life because when we feel at a place of nothing, God can turn that nothing into something. Now check this out. For you and I, that seems extraordinary. But for God, it's just another day. Making wine is not hard for God. Making wine is something that God has been doing from the beginning. All Jesus did was speed up the process. Jesus had the power to do that from his own will because he is God. Jesus is notorious for turning something out of nothing. He takes our sins and replaces them with righteousness. He takes our hurt and replaces it with purpose. He takes our need and replaces it with supply. Jesus is the great God because he is consistently working when things fall apart and turn them around. The second thing I want to show you is this. Jesus turning water into wine shows us that Jesus is also a man. Now, this is an interesting contrast for us. By one side, we see this, that him turning water into wine shows that Jesus is God. But at the same time, it also shows that Jesus is man. Jesus, just as this miracle pointed to his deity, it also points to his humanity. Think about the moment that we are in. Jesus' first miracle is at a joyous occasion of a wedding. We know Jesus is God, but sometimes we forget that he is man. Jesus is fully God. He is fully man. And as a man, he enjoyed life's experiences just like you and I can enjoy life's experiences. Some religious people during Jesus' day were trying to be a killjoy to the people of their day, and a lot of religious people today are still trying to be killjoys. However, our Lord and Savior came so that we could have joy in our heart, and we should mimic his example by walking in joy. Now, wine is often referenced in Scripture symbolically as joy and God's blessing. Psalms 104, verses 14 through 15 say this, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, and oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen a man's heart. Here's the principle. Sometimes there's deficiency of joy in our heart. Look at Mary's heart in this moment. There was no joy. She's concerned. She's humiliated. There's stress and there's anxiety. 
And life is full of these moments that cause stress and rob us of our joy. And sometimes there are moments in life where they don't go as planned. We get into a season where we're real excited for what's to come, but yet we find ourselves where it's not working out as planned, and it starts to rob us of our joy. So in this moment, what Jesus does is he has compassion on these people, and he wants to replenish what was taken from them so that they can have joy in their heart. He wanted to come in, and he wanted to take that emptiness, and he wanted to take the uneventful thing that had happened of a need, and he wants to replace it with joy in their hearts. Now, I can't explain how Jesus does that for us. But what I do know is that Jesus is our supply. And as a man, he intended for us to be joyful, and he intended to exhibit that joy in his own life, that we can mimic it. So Jesus turning water into wine teaches us that he is God. It also teaches us that he is man. But third, Jesus turning water into wine teaches us that he cares about the small details of our life. Here's an interesting question for you. If you're Jesus and you hear that they had ran out of wine at the wedding, why bother at all? I want you to think about that for a moment. Why did Jesus insert himself into this moment? Obviously, these people have already drank quite a bit. Most likely, the wine that they were drinking was watered down. That's how the Jewish teaching commentaries instructed the people to serve the wine. So they've already had their fill. Why worry if you're Jesus? Why not just say, well, party's over. Let's go home. If you're Jesus, why did he bother? The answer is very simple. Because he cared. He cared. Remember this. It's embarrassing for this homely family to run out of wine. Put yourselves in their shoes for a moment. Weddings are a big deal in our culture today. People will spend tens of thousands of dollars on their wedding. Weddings were an even bigger deal during Jesus' day. Most of these families are hardworking families. They didn't take vacations. They didn't have a lot of time for rest. And so weddings were big deals because they were a week-long celebration and people took off. It was like their vacation time. It was like their time when they got to hang out with their friends and their family and to celebrate and to feast and to have a good time. And now it was all ruined. Imagine your dream vacation is ruined in the middle of it. What does that do to your heart? And Jesus recognized that. This situation was not pleasant to be in, but it was not life-ending. So why did Jesus insert himself? Because he cared for this family and even the small detail of this family. One commentator wrote on this passage, he said this, anyone can do something great on a big stage, but it takes a special person to do something great when no one else is looking. And Jesus did something great in this moment simply because he cared for this family and no one else except those who were standing there watching noticed what happened. It's interesting that the first miracle performed is in a home. And sometimes people see the worst in their own home. They see their family members being mean, or they see people getting treated the way that they shouldn't inside the home. But sometimes just the small, annoying details of life happen in the home. The small things that just weigh us down happen in the home. And in this humble home, Jesus manifested his glory by meeting the small need that this family had. 
Listen, it doesn't matter how humble your situation, it doesn't matter how humble your need or how trivial it seems to you, Jesus cares about every single situation in our life. Jesus told his disciples, he said, why do you worry about what you eat and drink? God knows the number of hairs on your head. So if he cares about those small details, sometimes we have the smallest details in our life that are in need, and we never bring them to the Lord because we think this isn't a big enough need. You know, as I was preparing for this message today, the thing that I thought about over and over again is that this issue of water turning into wine, there being a need of wine, was not life and death. And I think there's so many times we hold back our prayers from God because we don't think it's a big enough need for God to address. We don't want to worry him with this. He has more important things to do. God is bigger than the big things. He's also big enough to handle the small things. And there are little things that we walk around with that we need God to intervene in our life, and we never ask him. And what did Jesus tell his disciples? He said, you have not because you ask not. And in this moment, Mary had the boldness to go ask Jesus to meet a little need. And you know what happened? The need was met. Fourth, Jesus turning water into wine teaches us that Jesus' creation are better than our own. What's so cool about this passage is that the, when they drew the water that had turned into wine out and they took it to the master of the ceremony, he drank, he drank the wine and he said, look, most of the time people at these sort of festivities bring the best out first, everybody drinks, and then they don't really think much about it, and then they bring out the poor stuff later, but you have brought out the best for last. Here's the principle. Everything we try to do in life without Christ is subpar to what Christ can do with us and through us. There are two types of people in this world that I think you need to know know about. There are people who uh, take on, they like quality of form and quality of function. So you're probably one of these two types of people. Everybody likes quality things, but you either like things that are pretty or you like things that work really, really well. I am a function guy. I like things that work really, really good. And so as a result, my staff gets irritated about me telling them about all these amazing things that I find that they don't care about. For example, if you know me, you know I love this Bible, okay? Jake's laughing right now because I talk about this Bible all the time, right? It is made with the finest goat skin, 36 grams per square meter paper. Now, you guys are thinking this guy's an idiot that he knows how heavy the paper is in his Bible. I like it, okay? Its functionality is perfect. It's exquisite. Handmade in the Netherlands. I like that a lot, okay? There's other things that I've had come in my life that uh, even this week, for example, I bought a brand new pair of hiking boots that brother... Mm, I'm telling you, these things are the best hiking boots I've ever bought in my life. The quality, the foresight that went into making these boots are exquisite. Here's the point. Quality means something to me, and I'm assuming quality means something to you. It's those small details that are just separate themselves from everybody else. So when I put these boots on, I realized that whoever made these boots has actually went hiking before. They're not making them just simply how they look. They're making them to actually fit. They're making them to actually form properly. For example, it's tight around the arch of your foot so your foot doesn't slip, but the toe box is wide open so that when your feet start to swell a little bit, they don't get tight. If you've never been hiking, you don't know that's a problem, right? If you don't actually walk more than from here to the refrigerator, you don't realize that your feet swell when it starts to get, when they start to, exactly. They're super light. Right? They realize if you're going to walk five, 600 miles in these things, you don't want them to be any heavier than they need to be. Right? So they're super light. And the best part is they're waterproof because you might get wet. 
And if you've ever walked with wet feet, there's nothing worse. There's no greater feeling in the world than a clean pair of socks. Good. I thought I'd get a good amen out of that. That's a, that, thank you, Mr. Tim. Okay, clean pair of socks. There's nothing worse in the world than walking around with wet feet. Okay? These people think it out. Here's the point in all this. Quality, you recognize quality when you see it. And what this master of ceremonies recognized in this moment is that the quality of this wine is exceptional. And what that teaches us is that Jesus does something above and beyond what we can ever ask or think, even in the small details of our life. We just have to give him an opportunity to do it. Fifth, I want you to see is this. Jesus turning water into wine teaches us that Jesus works behind the scenes in ways that we can't even see. Think about the reality. Christ provided the goodness of this banquet, and most people in that room didn't even know it. The master of the ceremony had no idea where the wine came from. Most likely, none of the guests knew where the wine came from. The only people who knew where the wine came from was Jesus, his mother, and the servants. Maybe his disciples were there. Maybe they weren't. We don't know. But Jesus worked in a way that no one else could see. And he performed this because he cared for the people. Listen, Jesus meets needs in our life even when we don't see him working. The guests were in need, and they weren't even aware that they were in need yet. And Jesus supplied their need before it became apparent to them. And here's what we need to realize. Sometimes God's working in our life even before we see a need, and that should cause praise to come up in our hearts. Sometimes Jesus is working in our life when we do see a need. And he's working in a way that we can't see how he's going to bring that provision. And we need to give him praise for that. The other thing it teaches us is that even when we don't see him working, he still is working. And we need to trust him. I want to close with this if the worship team wants to come back. The sixth and final thing that this account teaches us is Jesus turning water into wine teaches us that we can trust Jesus to do good things. Here's the one question that has always burned in my mind about Jesus turning water into wine. There's one question that I've never been able to answer. And I have looked, I've studied, and I finally found someone who gave me an answer. I was like, "Hmm, that makes sense. The question is this. Why did Mary bother to go ask Jesus to turn water into wine? Think about this for a moment. Jesus has never done one miracle. Jesus has been living on this earth for 30 years. Mary has not seen him heal a blind eye. She's not seen him walk on water. She hasn't seen him raise a dead person. She hasn't heard him preach one sermon. She has watched him work as a carpenter for 30 years. And in this moment, they're out of wine. And Mary comes to him and says, hey, they're out of wine. And Jesus' response to that question indicates that he knew that she wanted him to do something about it. Because he says, woman, my, my time hasn't come. Why are you involving me in this? So what indicated to Mary that Jesus would or could do anything about the wine situation? I like what one person said about this. Mary could not have known what Jesus would do but she knew that he would do the right thing. She could not have known what he would do, but she knew he would do the right thing. 
That's heavy if you think about it. Mary had no clue what Jesus could or would do. However, there was something about his presence. There was something about his nature. Even though she had never seen him do anything like this before, there was something about him that caused her to trust him. There's something about his nature that when she was in this point of need and she knew that something had to be fixed, that she ran to him and trusted to him. Listen, you might have never seen Jesus do one thing in your life. You might have never seen Jesus do one miracle. You might have never asked him for anything and he might have never answered a prayer. But let me tell you one thing. You can trust him because he has a good nature about him. Mary went to Jesus because his nature was good. And because his nature was good, she knew that he would treat her the right way. Let me tell you something. You can trust in the goodness of God. Jesus' response to her seems very harsh. Woman, what do you have to do with me? The translation of this is notoriously difficult for scholars. When they're trying to translate Jesus' words into to English, they struggle to try to adequately say what he's speaking to his mom. Now, in our culture, in our day, that sounds rude. If your mom came up to her and you said, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, if you had a mom like me, she's going to backhand you into the floor, right? Obviously, we know Jesus is not rude to his mom. This is the exact same way that he addresses her when he's on the cross at the end of John. So what Jesus is essentially saying when a lot of scholars, when, they, when they're trying to convey what he's saying, they're saying, look, here's what he's really saying. He says this, woman, don't worry. Leave this to me. I'll take care of it. Don't worry. Leave this to me. I'll take care of it. So when you have problems in life, both big and small, you have to run to the one that can fix it. You have to trust in Christ's goodness in your life because he can meet that need. Let him be the one that looks at you and says, don't worry, I've got this.